already, please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. This morning as we sang this song, How Great Thou Art, I was reminded of my years as an elementary student, maybe around seven or eight years old in a church in Arvada on the north side of Denver, probably sitting about, oh, maybe midway back in an auditorium, maybe just a little bit larger than this one, and a church there in Old Town, Arvada, and my great-grandfather sitting on the second row. And I just remember him singing that song, How Great Thou Art, as his favorite hymn. In fact, I wasn't even planning on starting this way, so sorry if I get emotional. He was overwhelmed with the greatness of God, and it came out through his voice, it came out through a scene. As an eight-year-old boy, I remember sitting there, hearing him. So we come to our text this morning in First Peter. Really, as I've thought about this text this week and the whole book, what is Peter trying to do with us? What is Peter trying to do for his people that he's writing to? What is Peter trying to communicate? What is he trying to stir up in us? but an affection, a view of the greatness of our God that's, that's greater than this world, that's greater than the suffering, that's greater than the opposition, anything that we might face in this life for following Christ. So when we sing those songs, How Great Thou Art, you know, can we, is it true that we scarcely can take it in that the Father would send the Son to shed His blood for us? Are we anticipating the greatness of His return when, when yes, He comes back with this shout of exaltation? He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And, and we know that when He returns in all of His glory and all of His might and He rights all wrongs, that, man, that we also will be glorified with Him. Are our affections stirred with these thoughts? Or are our affections stirred by lesser things? Are we caught up with lesser things, with things that are merely temporal, things of, of this life that seem to satisfy, or, or we, we want to avoid opposition and suffering at all costs so that we actually downplay what it means to follow Christ. In fact, we, we buy into a gospel that talks about the blessing of God totally divested from and, and apart from what it might mean to suffer with Christ. And my friends, this morning, if we've, if we've bought into a gospel like that, we, we have bought a bill of goods that is not the true gospel at all. So Peter writes in these verses, in chapter 5, verse 12, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in it. These days, the words authentic genuine, true. They're sort of buzzwords with our culture and our generation, are they not? Whether it's in the secular world or even in the Christian realm, the Christian subculture, the words authentic, genuine, and true are, are buzzwords. You just talk to students in high school or talk to students on the college campus and, and you'll hear them say things like, you know, I just really like that person. They're just, they're just very real. They're very authentic. I love them. I love hanging out with them because I can just have these real, authentic conversations with them about things that really matter. And, and many times we, we wonder, well, okay, that's good, that's good, but, but what does that actually mean? 
right? I had a friend, um, a true friend, he's a friend on Facebook too, but um, he lives in Florida now and he posted this week about his wife, well, about his neighbor saying about his wife, that he said, my neighbor told me that he thinks my wife is the most genuine person that he's ever met. And knowing his wife, I can only imagine what this means. She tends, tends to be quite sarcastic, quite blunt, and just kind of is there. You know, you know what I'm talking about. So she responds to her husband's compliment on Facebook and says to him, I just tell it like it is, with his big teethy smile emoji and the peace sign next to it. Yeah, we get that, right? We understand what we're talking about. There's a side of of being real and authentic and genuine that when we mean that, we mean that somebody's willing to actually just say it like it is. They're willing to sort of cut through the clutter. They're not worried about flattering anybody. They're not worried about beating around the bush. They're just simply willing to see and say what they see, at least from their perspective. doesn't mean their perspective is always right. So this is probably one thing that we mean when we talk about being true and genuine and real. In one sense, I think this is actually one aspect that Peter means about the gospel, about the true grace of God. It's, it cuts through the clutter. It gets right to the point. He's not beating around the bush. In fact, he's going to bring the cold, hard facts into our face that to follow Christ, a part of what it means to follow Christ and experience His grace will mean to go through suffering. There's other nuances, of course, to this. And, and even this idea of speaking the truth is, is one that, that leads us to this other aspect where, where we like people who are truly who they say they are. They're not hypocrites. You know, they're the same way here as they are at work or they're the same way in their family as they are here. They're not hypocrites. They're true. They're genuine. They're not liars. And this is one reason why, why Christianity is such a refreshing thing in our culture today. Because we can speak in a very transparent and clear way, even about ourselves, about our own sin, about our own failings and faults, amidst a culture that's so concerned with just simply keeping up appearances and keeping on the look and the facade. Being authentic, genuine, and true. Typically, imposters and liars and that which is not true, it, it might get by for a while. The person might get by for a while, but eventually it's found out. And most of the time it's found out rather quickly, probably more quickly than we even would anticipate. There's a story told in, uh, back in 2013 by CNN. You may have seen this. I didn't until just recently. There's a zoo in China that started receiving complaints about one of its exhibits. Visitors, as visitors approached the African lion cage, they were puzzled to hear barking sounds coming from the creature inside. It turns out the enclosure housed a Tibetan mastiff, which is a large dog with a thick mane around its neck, around its fur, uh, with its fur around its neck. But because the zoo most likely was running low on funds, they had substituted this dog for a lion, and the visitors were not happy. One visitor said this, the zoo is absolutely trying to cheat us. And another visitor said, if this works, why would people even bother going to the zoo? You can see dogs in the street. Indeed, no one goes to a zoo to see a dog. There were other animals as well that were mislabeled. 
another dog in a wolf cage, a white fox in a leopard enclosure, and there were rats in the snake exhibit. It's way too ironic. One person said as well, why doesn't the zoo simply just put the zookeeper in a cage with a sign, gorilla, on its gate? It'd probably be closer to the truth. One guest described this whole situation as absurd. And it is. It is. The fraud, the lie, the con of the entire situation was quickly revealed. Anyone who had ever seen a real lion, whether in a picture or in person on a safari as we've heard about from Steve and others, you're going to recognize that there's something not authentic, not genuine, not real about this animal that's being presented as a lion. This reminds us of a fable from Aesop. A donkey, he puts on the lion's skin and he roams about in the forest and he amuses himself by frightening all the foolish animals he meets. At last he comes up to a fox and he tries to frighten the fox as well, but the fox no sooner heard the sound of his voice than he exclaimed, I might possibly have been frightened if I hadn't heard you bray. You know, God has given us a very keen sense of what's real, and what's authentic. He's given us a keen sort of nose to sniff out the liars, the cons, the frauds. And yeah, maybe we don't recognize it right away. Maybe we just notice there's something off and something just not right. But eventually, eventually it comes out. Peter writes to us and says, Brothers, sisters, beloved, I don't want you to be fooled. I don't want you to be taken away by a lesser gospel. I don't want you to be deceived by what's not truly the grace of God. So I've written to you this short letter. I've written to you briefly to explain to you, to exhort, to declare this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is an astounding statement to me as you look in verse 12 of chapter 5. This is an astounding statement for several reasons. One, Peter is in a sense declaring that he himself was a true witness to the true grace of God. And all you have to do is think back to the, to the story of Peter and his life. How he has experienced the forgiveness. How he has experienced the grace the mercy, the redemption, the washing, the restoration, the cleansing of God's grace in his life. So Peter comes and says, this is the true grace of God. And he presents himself throughout the letter as a true witness to this true grace of God. This is an astounding thing for a person to say. Peter also makes it clear that this is astounding for another reason, that he has found the grace and the promises of God to be true in his own life. How else could he write this way? If, as he's a true witness, what is he a true witness to? Well, he's a true witness to the reality that God's grace and God's promises are true, even in the most dire circumstances. And again, you've seen that through his story, and it's been recorded for us in the book of Acts. How when he proclaimed the excellencies of Christ, he he, he would not stop proclaiming the glories of Christ and calling people to repent and believe in Jesus. And as a result, he suffered. And even then, he experienced the immediate deliverance and the immediate blessing. 
and the future hope and the future blessing that comes with that faithfulness and that endurance and that God was faithful to his promises. Then, therefore, he knew that God would be faithful to his promises in the future. And then wrapped up in this, finally, is something that Peter just assumes. And he he assumes that we need to be drawn into this. This is why I think he's trying to turn our affections and stir up our love for the greatness of this God. Because the final thing that Peter assumes here, and which is most astounding to me, is that Peter seems to simply assume that this is the true God as well. This is not something to be questioned. This is not something to be debated about, whether or not this God exists, or whether this God is real, or whether, the, whether or not Jesus Christ is truly God, and what Jesus did, and what's recorded in the Scriptures is true. No, Peter just assumes it. He He comes in this most astounding way and says, no, this is true. This is true. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in it. We have been exploring throughout the letter the question, well, what what is this true grace of God? And what does it mean for us to to stand firm in it? And really, this verse of chapter 5, verse 12, gives us a summary of of Peter's entire approach. gives us these two words. This is the true grace of God, but what has he done? He has exhorted and he has declared. So, all throughout the letter, he has been proclaiming truth to us. He has been proclaiming the true nature of God's grace to us, and then he's been exhorting us. He has been compelling us. He's been commanding us. If this is true about God's grace, this then is how you should live and shape your life. So, we're not going to go back through the entire letter this morning and go through every nuanced command and detail, but I want to point our attention to a few overwhelming summary ideas. In fact, in the verse 13, Peter hints at one of the ideas that we must recognize as we walk through this letter. He says this, She who is at Babylon, what's he referring to? He's referring to the, the church, the, the called out ones. In fact, he, he, he calls them chosen. Chosen. That's an idea. The idea of being chosen, the idea of being called out, is an idea that's very pervasive in Peter's letter here. In fact, I would encourage you to go back through. We're going to do a high-level summary of it, but I encourage you to go back through and, and trace this theme of what it means to be chosen by God, to be called by God. Because in this In this calling, in this choosing of God, his people, his followers, his disciples, this is where we begin, where we begin to experience this true grace of God. So, going back to chapter 1, verse 1, Peter addresses his letter to those who are the elect, the chosen. Of the dispersion. Verse 2. This is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So he he begins with this idea of being elect, of being chosen, of being the called out ones for God. This is the true grace of God. Let's just trace that theme a little bit throughout the letter. In verse 15 of chapter 1. Those who are chosen are called to something. They are called to be holy. Just as he is holy. Peter, as one author writes, Peter reminds his readers that it was God 
who initiated their salvation. It is when the Gospel came to them in power and God summons them out of darkness. He calls them out of darkness into fellowship with Himself. And it's this powerful calling of the Christian life which introduces us to the grace of God. And it's a calling that comes with an obligation, verse 15. If we're called by one who is holy, we're called to be holy like Him. If we're called to live with God, then we're called to live like God. Sometimes we think of holiness, though, as just this complete separation from the world and in being isolated from all that is evil and wrong. And there is a negative aspect to it, like that, where we should be separate from all things that are sinful and all things that are opposed to God. A separateness from sin. But also, wrapped up in this idea, and throughout the letter, is a, is a very intentional and direct pursuit of the glory of God. This is what it means to be holy. Not simply to be separate and isolated from sin or evil, but, but also to pursue the glory of God. The pursuit of a righteous life. The pursuit of a life that's full of doing good for others. Loving God and loving others. So don't let us get lopsided in our understanding of our calling and the grace of God that He has poured out on us. That, that He has called us out to be a holy people. We're not merely to avoid sin. But we're called to actively pursue a righteous life. An active pursuit of doing good to others. The next thing we see is in chapter 2, verse 9. Now, God has called us from a particular state of being into a new state of being. Chapter 2, verse 9. He says once, or excuse me, um, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies who did what? Who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Before God poured out His true grace on us, we were living lives in darkness. Lives of hopelessness. Lives controlled by sin. Lives destined for destruction apart from God. But when God poured out His mercy on your life, when God poured out His grace on your life, He called you. In the only way that could awaken you, the one dwelling in darkness, to respond to His glorious light. I think Lazarus in John 11 is a great illustration of this concept for us. Jesus speaks to a dead man who's truly dead. He's been in there four days. The people around complain that he's going to stink if they open the door, roll away the stone. And he calls to him. And he calls the one who is physically dead in a manner that illustrates for us the spiritual darkness and the spiritual deadness that all of us have. And he calls. The Lord of life calls. And this man comes to life. So Peter writes, He has called you out of darkness 
into His marvelous light. As he, he's poured out His mercy on you because once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And when God brings us together as individual called out ones, what is He doing? Look at this. He's, he's making us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's building us into something. He's creating something. He's making you to be something that, that you never set out to be. He's making you into something that you, you would never endeavor on yourself to be. And it's all for His glory. It's all for His glory. Look at this next one. In chapter 2, verse 21. Peter writes that we are called to something else. To this you are called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. What are we called to here? Without going back to the whole chapter, we're called to endure, to face unjust suffering and to endure, to continue to trust God, to continue to obey God, even when difficulty comes, even when life gets hard as a believer. See, it's only when we prepare and only when we think about our calling this way that, that we are called to follow in the footsteps of Christ even if suffering comes. If we don't have this view, if we don't think about this now, we will not be prepared when suffering actually does come into our life. He has called us to follow Him. We must be ready. We must be prepared. But look at the grace of God in verses 21 to 25. It's not that, that, that God has just called us to something that He's not willing to enter into. It's not that He has left us without grace. Here's the grace of God in verses 21 to 25. This is the gospel in miniature. For Christ suffered. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued trusting himself to the one who judges justly. Christ is our example, yes, for us to follow. But Christ is our example to empower us as well. To pour out his grace on us because he suffered for us. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This was impossible before God poured out the true grace of God on, on your life through Christ. Why? Because verse 25, you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See, this is what God's grace is doing. He's, he's transforming us. He's reshaping our thinking. He's building us as individual people, as individual members into this great nation, to this royal priesthood, into a building made for God to display his glory. Look at the grace of God. Sometimes we think, well, okay, if we're called to this, then does this mean that we're supposed to go look for suffering? Does it mean like we're supposed to go and sort of pick fights with the world? No, of course not. Theologians call this the cruciform life or the cross life. We're supposed to imitate him, yes, and in following him in his footsteps. But, but what are we following? When, when Christ laid down his life for us, when he bore our sins in his body for us, obviously we cannot duplicate this. Our suffering is not salvific. Our suffering is not redemptive for ourselves or for anyone else. But we are called to live our lives mimicking this, the cross life of Christ. 
in this sense. We should go about our lives every day looking for how we might use our lives. The energy, the resources, all the grace that God has poured out on us to serve others. Just as Christ willingly served us by laying down His life, we ought to live our lives on a daily basis actively looking how might we use our lives to give life to others. How might we use our lives to introduce others to the grace of Christ? How might we use our lives to display His glory and His grace and His mercy to others? This is the gospel in miniature. As we obey, as we follow Christ in this way, we, in one sense, are representing Christ to the world. We are representing the gospel to the world. Maybe to people who have never picked up the scriptures. Maybe to people who have never heard the name of Jesus. And we're representing that to them. They're seeing it. And they're being stopped in their tracks because this is so counter-cultural and counterintuitive that somebody would willingly give up their own life to serve them. This is what we're called to. And then in chapter 3, Peter writes, we're called to this as well. Verse 9. We're called not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, to bless. For to this you are called, so that you may obtain a blessing. What a phenomenal promise comes with this command, comes with this calling. We are called to respond like Christ. Not to repay evil with evil, but to bless. Even our enemies. And as we do, we know, we know that God's blessing is being poured out on us, both now and for the future. Paul, in the book of Romans, gives us an illustration. He gives us an image of this kind of life. It's to heap coals on your enemy's head. That doesn't really mean much to us, right? Like, that actually sounds kind of mean, Paul, to heap coals on somebody's head. Well, let me, let me read this to you. From Romans chapter 12, Paul says this, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. But on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, you should feed him. If he is thirsty, you should give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What an amazing illustration. This is exactly what Peter's talking about. Instead of returning evil, instead of returning reviling, instead we, we learn how to bless, we learn how to pray for our enemies, we learn how to respond in kindness to those who offend us and not take offense at them, whether in the church or outside the church, and especially those who are opposed to us and opposed to Christ. And Peter and Paul say this, again, this is how they're going to see the kindness of God as you respond in kindness. And in such a way, you're going to heap coals on their head. And God's going to do what God's going to do with that, whether he's going to draw them to himself or whether they're going to be hardened and turn away to the judgment. But we must trust Him. 
finally, chapter 5, verse 10, just before our section today, Peter writes this, And the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, He Himself will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To Him be power forever and ever. Amen. See, the God of all grace. It's it's fitting that this theme of being called, the theme of being chosen out by God, culminates with this one. He's the God of all grace. And He has called you to His eternal glory. How? In Christ. In Christ. The God of all grace. There's several observations from this short text right here at the end. Simply these thoughts. There is no grace outside of this God. So Peter says, this is the true God. Christ has done what he said he has done. Christ has accomplished redemption. Christ has brought grace to all who will repent and believe. This is the true grace of God. He is the God of all grace and there is no grace outside of him. There's no forgiveness. There's no redemption. There's no promise. For the believer, though, there's additional thoughts here. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace has promised you this, that this suffering will not last long. And that is no small encouragement to many, many believers around the world who who face opposition and physical suffering even today. For us, we read that and we're kind of like, yeah, whatever. Brothers and sisters, don't just read over it. Understand that even in this life, when suffering comes, this life is short. Suffering will be short. And when it comes to you, here's the promise for you to hold on to. It's just a little while. It's just a little while. And then, He will restore you. He will make you strong. He will make you firm. He will make you steadfast. Which is interesting because then he commands us, Peter exhorts us to stand firm. And what's he essentially saying? Peter's essentially saying, stand firm in Christ. Stand firm in God. Stand firm in everything that I've written to you about. The true gospel, the true grace of God. Don't be deceived. Don't be taken away. Just real briefly, we've focused on the the Father in the triune Godhead. But Peter also addresses how the Spirit works. The Spirit sanctifies us. Chapter 1, verse 2. He makes us holy. And again, we, we recognize that this means being set apart to a unique, pure life. A life that imitates the character of God. But it's also set set apart. We're we're set apart as holy ones for a specific purpose, to do good and to proclaim the glory of God. And that's teased out throughout the letter. And of course, we have the focus on Christ throughout the letter, the third person of the Trinity. In in uh, chapter 1, verse 2, Peter illustrates this again, and he, he hints at this. You are the elects, the chosen, the called ones for a specific purpose, for the obedience to the Son. And how does this happen? Because we're sprinkled by His blood. 
And we read that and we think, sprinkling by his blood, does this mean we're like taking a shower in his blood? What kind of imagery are we talking about here? And of course, it's theological imagery. It's theological language. And Peter wants us to understand that the idea of sprinkling with his blood means that we are obtaining all the benefits of Christ's life and death and resurrection because we've been united with him. We have been covered by his blood. We have been ransomed by his precious blood. So we have life. We have life. And how is this accomplished? Well, as you go through the letter, Peter reminds us, well, this son, the third person of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, he humbles himself for his people. He humbles himself for you. He suffers for you. He redeems you. He gives you an example to follow. He empowers you with his grace. He will exalt you. He will vindicate you. He will glorify you. Christ has accomplished all of this for you. So we come to the conclusion, the exhortation of Peter to his people. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So what does that look like? There's sort of three big ideas, and we've already touched on them as we've gone through and as we understand the true grace of God, we cannot separate what God has done and what he calls us to be and what he calls us to do. But the first one is simply we're called to be holy. The implication of God pouring out his grace on us, of us experiencing this true grace of God is to be holy, to love God and love others, to reflect him, to bring praise to him through our lives. The second implication is that we're called to do good and to love others, which flows right out of loving God and being holy. In chapter 2, Peter writes, You're, you should do this so that they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We're called to do good and to love others. Above all, he says in chapter 4, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Serve as God has gifted you. Thirdly, we're called to be witnesses. We're called to be holy. We're called to do good and love others. We're called to be witnesses. In chapter 2, verse 9, this is so clear. The purpose, God is, the reason that God has poured out His grace on us is to give us a new purpose, a new goal in life, and that is to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in our words and in our lives. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into light. So Peter, as a true witness, exhorts us and declares to us the true grace of God. Peter knew this mercy. Peter thought about his salvation. Peter thought about this grace. Peter was transformed by the indwelling presence of the Spirit. Peter was moved, compelled by this grace. And I just want to encourage us this morning, brothers and sisters, that I wonder if the reason that we do not live holy lives that properly reflect our God and our Savior the reason that we do not 
do good works and love others as our God and Savior has done for us. And the reason that we are not bold or even that we don't even seek to proclaim the excellencies of this God who has called us out of light, out of darkness into light. The reason that, that we do not live this kind of life is that we have a very, very low view of the grace of God. We have a very low view of the mercy of God. We are content to live our lives for lesser things. And the great danger for a church like that is that when suffering comes, we don't know where we're supposed to stand. So Peter calls us. Will you revel? Will you know? Will you meditate? Will you be consumed? Will you dive into this true grace of God? Will you swim around in it? Will you find Christ to be satisfying? Will you find Christ to be excellent? Will you be, find Christ to be more than enough for you? Will you consider the reality that once you were not a people, but now you're a people? Once you did not know what mercy and kindness was, and now you know what mercy and kindness is through Jesus Christ. Once, once you were caught up in the darkness and the slavery of your sin, knowing no other path, but now you have the light of life. The Spirit is dwelling in you and transforming you into a new person, into a new way of living.